You are listening to Aftersight. This recording is intended solely for individuals who are blind or have low vision. Hello, you are listening to the Boulder County News. My name is Leslie Madsen. Today's top stories, most Coloradans cannot afford food and housing after end of pandemic protections survey finds. The percentage of Coloradans who said that they struggle to afford housing and rent has rebounded to pre-pandemic levels after temporary support expired, while the share reporting mental health challenges has continued to rise. One bright spot in the newly released Colorado Health Access Survey which collected responses from about 10,000 randomly selected households, was that the uninsured rate fell to a new low of 4.6 in 2023. But that number may not reflect the current situation since the surveys came in between March and September and included only a few months when the state was removing residents from Medicaid, said Sarah Schmidt, who is the president and CEO of the Colorado Health Institute. During the COVID-19 public health emergency, states could not remove most people from their Medicaid rolls, but that protection ended in early 2023. Colorado started removing residents in May if the state Medicaid program could not verify their eligibility and if they didn't return paperwork proving they were qualified. We don't know how many Coloradans who are on Medicaid have found other coverage, Schmidt said during a press briefing on Wednesday. Some may have lost coverage. The loss of pandemic protections already showed up in some areas, though. The percentage of people who reported they worried that they wouldn't have a stable place to live in the next two months rebounded to roughly the same level as in 2019, with 16.9% of renters and 2.4% of homeowners expressing that concern. The percentage of renters who said that they were worried was up by more than one-third compared to 2021, when the country was under an eviction moratorium for the first half of the year. Food insecurity, which the survey defined as eating less than a person thought they should because they could not afford food, was higher than before the pandemic, with 11.2% of respondents saying that they experienced it. In 2021, the food insecurity rate dropped to about 8.1%, partially due to a temporary increase in the food assistance dollar, Schmidt said. The return to normal levels of assistance, plus the rise in grocery prices, pushed more people's budgets to the brink, she said. Coloradans' mental health also was worse than before the pandemic, with 26.2% of survey respondents reporting that they had poor mental health on eight or more days in the previous month said Lindsay Whittington, data and analysis manager at the Colorado Health Institute. The economic and psychological trends may be related. Since poor mental health was most common in adults under 50, they said, we saw that mental health challenges did not go away as the pandemic eased, Whittington said. We know that there have been many financial and social stressors impacting adults. While most of the news from the 2023 report wasn't good, it did show that some of the actions that Colorado and the federal government took to help families stay financially afloat during the pandemic succeeded in reducing the effects of poverty like food and housing insecurity, Weddington said. We know that policy works, they said. 
Boulder County approves $4.725 million in agricultural land purchases. County commissioners approved two Longmont area land purchases by the Boulder County Parks and Open Space Department on Tuesday, each for more than a million dollars. The Parks and Open Space Department plans to buy the former Sky Pilot Farm. That's about 42 acres at 10384 Airport Road for $1.75 million. It is directly east of Longmont's Vance Brand Airport. The Parks and Open Space Department plans to buy a 101-acre parcel of land between Longmont and Lyons is 6969 Ute Road for $2.975 million. The 6969 Ute Road parcel has already been under a county conservation easement since 1996, meaning that no additional additional buildings may be built there. Parks and open space land officers said that both parcels have the potential benefits for small acreage agricultural producers. Both purchases include water rights. At 6969 Ute Road, the Cottonwood property includes a house along with several barns and sheds. Both the Rough and Ready and Palmerton ditches pass through the property, said Aaron Clark, a land officer with Parks and Open Space. This property really has high potential for diverse small acreage producers, good size, excellent soils, really wonderful water rights, and close proximity and accessibility to both Longmont and Lyons. The former Sky Pilot Farm, listed as Skyview in the county documents, includes parts of the South Flat and Niwot ditches, said Tina Burkhart, who is senior land officer. An environmental assessment did not find any recognized environmental conditions, she said. The parcel will help the department offer agricultural opportunities to a diverse tenant pool since it lies in close proximity to Longmont, which offers housing and transportation means for potential farm workers, Burkhart said. The county commissioners approved both property acquisitions. A lot of these properties become opportunities for, well, in particular, the indigenous communities and smaller acreage opportunities for folks who haven't been able yet to farm in Boulder County, said Commissioner Marta. Locoming. The commissioner, uh, Claire Levy, added that since both properties already contain houses, the structures could become residents for farm workers and other laborers. When there is an opportunity to not only acquire land, but acquire something that could be a residence, I realize we may need to invest in it to make it habitable, but I think it's money well spent, Levy said. Is housing health care? State Medicaid programs increasingly say yes. States are plowing billions of dollars into high-stakes health care experiment that's exploding around the country, using scarce public health insurance money to provide housing for the poorest and sick- sickest Americans. California is going the biggest, pumping $12 billion into an ambitious Medicaid initiative, largely to help homeless patients find housing, pay for it, and then avoid eviction. Arizona is allocating $550 million in Medicaid funding primarily to cover six months of rent for homeless people. Oregon is spending more than $1 billion on services such as emergency rental assistance for patients facing homelessness. Even Ruby Red Arkansas will dedicate nearly $100 million partly to house its neediest. At least 19 states are directing money from Medicaid 
the state federal health insurance program for low-income people, into housing aid in addressing the nation's growing homelessness epidemic, according to the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Even though there's a, there's little agreement that this will provide a long-term fix for vulnerable patients' health or housing, the Biden administration is encouraging other states to jump in. Several states are in the pipeline, including Tennessee, West Virginia, Montana, and New York got the green light from the federal government in January. Using health care funding to house people is a big philosophical debate, said Alex Demyon, who is assistant director for Arizona's Medicaid agency. We know that health care cannot solve all of the problems, but we know that housing agencies are maxed out and we have enormous need to help stabilize people. Homelessness jumped 12% in the United States last year to an estimated 653,000 Americans. That's the highest level on record, even as the nation dramatically increased its inventory of permanent housing and temporary shelter beds. As people languish on the streets, often struggling with addiction, severe mental illness, and untreated chronic diseases, Healthcare officials and political leaders are turning to health insurance money for relief. They argue that housing aid will improve health and save taxpayer money by keeping people out of institutions such as nursing homes, hospitals, and jails. But evidence supporting this argument is mixed. For instance, in a trial by researchers at the University of California, San Francisco, homeless people in Santa Clara County California, who were randomly assigned to receive long-term housing and services, used the psychiatric emergency department 38% less than a control group over four years while increasing their use of routine mental health care. But participants were still hospitalized at rates, at high rates, and also continued to rely on the emergency room for routine medical care, uh, care or rest. State Medicaid programs have long dabbled in housing, but with the blessing and encouragement of the Biden administration, they are launching more services for more people with heaps of new state and federal money. This trend is part of a broader White House strategy that encourages Medicaid directors to offer social services alongside traditional medical care with the goal of making their residents healthier. A health care dollar can do more than just pay for a doctor visit or a hospital stay, said Xavier Becerra, who is Secretary of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. We should be using the federal health care dollar for wellness care, get them before they get ill, and then keep them healthy. Is there anyone who would deny that someone who is homeless is going to have a harder time keeping their health up than someone who is housed with running water and heat? Sarah acknowledged these initiatives as experiments, but he said the federal government can no longer ignore the rampant death and disease that is plaguing homeless populations around the United States. We're simply saying, state, if you can prove to us that with this Medicaid dollar, you will improve someone's health or health outcome, then you have essentially served the purpose of the Medicaid program and you're saving taxpayers more money, he said. But not all healthcare leaders or even homelessness experts believe that this is the best use of Medicaid money, especially by a safety net program that faces routine criticism for failing to provide basic health care to many enrollees. If you're on Medicaid, then you have to wait months and months for a specialty visit, even if it's a life-threatening concern. So I worry about what people won't be able to get because of this, said Margot 
Krischel. She's a leading homelessness researcher and primary care doctor at Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital and Trauma Center, and she primarily treats low-income patients. It's not that I don't want the money to be spent, but is it best spent in health care, she said. It's much better than nothing, but it's far from providing the long-term housing and stability that people really need. Krischel said that the danger is that most Medicaid housing assistance can be used only once or is time-limited, such as rental payments, which typically end after six months. By the time folks get into housing, they're already really, really sick, she said. What happens at the end of six months when rental assistance like free rent runs out? Across the country, state Medicaid programs are stretching the definition of health care and getting into the business of social services delivering a range of non-traditional benefits, such as healthy home-delivered meals for patients with diabetes and air filters for patients with asthma. While the federal government historically has banned the use of Medicaid money for direct rent payments, that has changed. In 2022, Arizona received federal approval for an initiative called H2O which will prioritize homeless people and those at risk of losing housing who also have a mental health condition and chronic illness. When it launches in October, it will primarily provide two services, rent payments for up to six months in transitional housing, which can include shelters and intensive services. Arizona saw a 5% jump in homelessness in 2023 from the previous year. Its program will supplement a separate state-funded Medicaid initiative that provides 3,000 rent vouchers for people in southern Arizona who have, have a severe mental illness and are homeless or at risk of becoming homeless. About 5,000 people are on the waiting list for a voucher. We've seen such positive health outcomes that cost reductions as a result, so it's made total sense for us to expand our work in that space, Demian said. That program slash DR visits 45% and reduced hospital inpatient admissions 53% at the six-month mark after patients started receiving services while increasing less costly preventative care 56% and saving $4,300 per member per month, all according to state data. California, home to nearly 30% of the nation's homeless population, saw a nearly 6% jump in homelessness in 2023 to about 180,000 people. The state launched its massive Cal-AIM initiative in 2022 to offer a variety of social services to a small sliver of the state's roughly 15 million Medicaid enrollees. A large share of the resources are going to housing services for homeless people or those facing eviction, such as covering security deposits and enlisting case managers to hunt for available apartments. State leaders in California are also asking the Biden administration for permission to provide six months of rent. If you're saddled with a great deal of either physical or behavioral health conditions, whether it's diabetes or HIV, high blood pressure, or schizophrenia, without housing, it's really hard to stabilize those conditions, said Mark Gailey, Secretary of California's Health and Human Services Agency. But Mark Gailey also cautioned that Medicaid's core focus must remain on getting people healthy, even if they're living outside, which is a monumental and expensive challenge because of conditions like diabetes, heart disease, and HIV requires 
continuous treatment and often multiple medications. I do not think that healthcare is responsible for solving homelessness in California or anywhere else, he said, but if housing instability or lack of housing is one of the key drivers in getting in the way of being healthy, then we absolutely need to pay attention to it. Health insurers that provide Medicaid coverage in California can choose whether to provide housing services, but in Oregon, requiring Oregon is requiring Medicaid insurers to do so. Homelessness grew 12% in Oregon from 2022 to 2023, but the state is targeting patients at risk of becoming homeless. Participants will be eligible for six months of rent and other services when the program launches this November, said Dave Baden, who is Deputy Director of the Oregon Health Authority. We are really trying to focus on people teetering on the brink, Baden said. If you're already homeless, you really need longer sustainable housing dollars to keep that person housed. It's not just states that are experimenting with this approach. Kaiser Permanente is one of the health systems that has invested its own funds into housing. In recent years, Kaiser, the health giant, has committed hundreds of millions of dollars to help maintain or build thousands of affordable housing units in addition to providing housing-related Medicaid benefits for its members. We have to do something. The crisis is out of control, said Bachara Kalcher, who is Kaiser's chief health officer. And in more healthcare news, what to do if your hospital drops your Medicare Advantage plan? Slightly more than half of Medicare eligible people are enrolled in Medicare Advantage, but hospitals around the country have been dropping Medicare Advantage plans due to issues with prior authorizations and denials. Hospitals and health systems in at least 11 states announced in 2023 that they would be out of network for some or all of Medicare Advantage plans in 2024. It's really a problem for people, said Katie Votava, who holds a doctorate in health economics and nursing and is president and founder of Good Care. That's a consulting firm focused on the economics of health care. This has always been a problem, but it's getting worse. It's not only the reimbursement rates, but the approvals have become so onerous for providers to deal with. Among other things, Medicare Advantage plans require patients to get prior authorization for more services than original Medicare. Prior authorizations require time on the part of a medical provider, and the requests aren't always successful. It's not like you get paid more to compensate for the fact that you spent all this doctor time jumping through hoops, said Melinda Cog Hill, who is co-founder and CEO of 65 Incorporated, that offers guidance on Medicare. Essentially, it is huge. It's a huge money loser for medical practices. Nielsa Cruz, an administrator and patient advocate at rheumatology practice in Milwaukee, recalls spending two hours trying to reach an insurance representative just to advocate for one patient. Many of the critical administrative and clinical functions have been outsourced by these plans, she said. Medicare Advantage companies say that prior authorization does have benefits, but they've taken steps to ease the burden on providers and patients. United Healthcare, for instance, announced last year that it would eliminate almost 20% of its prior authorizations. Prior authorizations help ensure member safety and lower the total cost of care, but we understand that they can be a pain point for per for providers and members, said Dr. Ann Dosimo, who is Chief Medical Officer at United Healthcare. Hospitals are also frustrated by administrative delays and denials for care. 
In October 2023, St. Charles Health Systems in Oregon announced it would be dropping three Medicare Advantage providers in 2024. We care deeply about our patients and the care they receive, which is why we are unwilling to continue with the status quo with Medicare Advantage plans that result in restrictions to patients' patient care, longer stays, and administrative burdens for providers, said the Chief Clinical Officer for St. Charles. So how big an issue is it, and what can patients do? Although Medicare's fall open enrollment period has ended, Medicare Advantage open enrollment does run from January 1st to March 31st each year. And during that time, Medicare Advantage enrollees can switch plans or return to original Medicare. If you are outside an open enrollment window, you might be able to take advantage of a five-star special enrollment period, which allows you to switch from your current Medicare Advantage plan to a five-star plan in your area. You can do this once between December 8th and November 30th of the following year. That hinges on whether you have access to a five-star plan, said Meredith Freed. She is Senior Policy Manager for the Program on Medicare Policy, a health policy think tank. So do your research before jumping to another plan. If you're considering switching because you're concerned about having access to a specific provider or hospital, I would suggest calling that provider to make sure that they're in network for any plan that you are considering, Freed says. And if you're outside of open enrollment or you don't qualify for a special enrollment period, you'll just have to wait for the next open enrollment period in order to change plans unless you move, which Coghill calls the nuclear option. When you move, you do have a Medicare do-over, Coghill said. You just have to move out of your Medicare Advantage's plan service area. Not only can you change Medicare Advantage plans if you move, but if you have another chance to sign up for original Medicare and a Medigap plan with guaranteed issue rights. The caveat is you really do have to actually move and not just pretend that you've moved. So don't commit insurance fraud, she said. Colorado legislators working to free up millions of dollars for schools enrolling migrant students. Colorado legislators are working with the governor of Colorado to allocate millions of dollars in additional funds that will help schools that have continued to see an influx of immigrant students since, since uh, October enrollment count. That last October enrollment count sets each district's annual state funding. Representative Emily Sirota, a Denver Democrat, said she requested the Joint Budget Committee sponsor legislation that would set up a one-time cash fund of $24 million within the State Department of Education that the agency could use to distribute additional money to school districts based on an updated count of students. The problem is being felt acutely in Denver, which has seen the brunt of the migrant crisis in Colorado with more than 38,000 new arrivals to Denver since December 2022. DPS, or Denver Public Schools, has enrolled an additional 1,900 students who are new to the country since the state's October count, district officials said Wednesday. That means that Colorado's largest school district is currently short more than $20 million in state funding, which is set at about $11,000 per student each year. We've heard from schools all across the state that are trying to be responsive, Sirota said. There is widespread interest and support for us trying to do something this fiscal year for our schools and our teachers. 
Governor Jerry Polis is working with the legislators on the proposal to provide additional funding to school districts with new arrivals, spokesperson Shelby Wyman said. Ensuring that school districts receive funding that they need to educate students where they are currently attending school has been a top priority since day one, he said. Legislators are trying to determine what is the best way for schools to verify the number of new students that they've enrolled since October, while accounting for any students who might have left. One proposal, Sirota said, is to use the number of students taking English language proficiency exams in order to determine how many new migrant children have arrived. Once a mechanism is agreed upon to count the number of students, Sirota said the idea would be for the Colorado Department of Education to then allocate funding on a per-student basis. But to get this done, legislators must first run and pass a bill. Jeremy Meyer, a spokesperson for the State Education Department, said the Joint Budget Committee has agreed that a bill should be introduced, but that the department has not yet seen a draft of any proposed legislation. The specifics of the bill have not yet been hammered out, Sirota said. We're not trying to alter the school, the school. <laughs> we are not trying to alter the school finance formula, she said. We're just really trying to set up a separate one-time pot of money that will address this current situation that the districts are managing. Boulder County awards $620,000 in environmental grants. On Tuesday, Boulder County officials said they would give $620,000 in environmental sustainability matching grants to nine cities in the region to support things like electric landscaping equipment as well as recycling projects. This year's selection of projects ranging from climate resiliency to cooling solutions to waste services highlights the importance of place-based community-led strategies, said Leah Yancey, Boulder County Senior Sustainability Strategist. Boulder is set to receive $215,990 to help help workers switch over to electric landscaping equipment and to support urban forestry growth. Longmount was granted over $201,000 to help improve neighborhood cooling systems and to bolster recycling initiatives at city parks. Lafayette will also use its $63,000 to improve recycling in its parks, as well as to convert a fire station's turf lawn into Xeriscape landscaping. Officials in Erie, Jamestown, Lyons, Nederland, Superior, and Louisville are all set to use their grant money for various local initiatives to improve energy efficiency. In Boulder County, we are turning our climate and sustainability goals into reality, one project at a time, said Boulder County Commissioner Claire Levy in a statement. This $620,000 investment across nine communities isn't just about funding. It's a testament to our collective commitment to a sustainable future. The Sustainability Matching Grant Program started back in 2014. In 2016, voters approved a 0.125% countywide sustainability tax. That designates a portion of sales and use tax revenue to fund sustainability programs and infrastructure. Each city is required to match a quarter of the funding that it requests from the program with its own funds.
And turning to news from Lafayette, Lafayette is partnering with Sister Carmen for water bill help. Lafayette residents may get help with their water bills. The city is partnering with the Sister Carmen Community Center to pilot a new program to help qualifying residents. In the first year of the program, qualified Lafayette water customers who are older adults or on a fixed income can receive a $7.50 reduction for 2024 water bills. Residents can email the Sister Carmen group at info at sistercarmen.org or residents can call Sister Carmen group at 303-665-4342 to access the program. In January, the Lafayette City Council approved increasing monthly water service fees and use rates. Public Works Director Jeff Arthur said at the January 2nd meeting that the average single-family home will see a $6 increase to a winter water bill and a larger increase this summer. FBI and police investigate Lafayette Chamber fraud case. The FBI and local police are investigating a fraud case that happened at the Lafayette Chamber of Commerce late last year, said Katie McNeil, who is the Chamber's Executive Director, as well as Brian Rossi Pajla, who is Lafayette Police Department Deputy Chief. Because this fraud incident is still under investigation, both McNeil and Rosa Pia said that they are unable to share more details about the case. A chamber email in January said that the chamber was a victim of a bank fraud perpetrated by professionals. McNeil said the chamber does not have the exact date of the fraud but only that it affected the chamber's bank account and no chamber member's information was compromised. The January email said the chamber is financially strong and there will be no impact to our regular business operations or events. As the investigation continues, however, McNeil said people at the chamber want to help local businesses avoid future scams. Cyber criminals are able to appear as legitimate people and the chamber wants to help businesses learn how to be vigilant and avoid scammers, she said. We want to take this opportunity to share what happened to us so that everybody else can learn from it. In April, the Lafayette and Erie Chambers of Commerce plan to host a joint seminar on fraud, McNeil said. While no specific date has yet been set, the organizers plan to have a banker and an information technology professional speak with business owners to help them identify scammers. The seminar will give business owners tips on how to protect themselves from fraud attempts. McNeil took over the chamber's executive director in January 2024 after her predecessor, Vicki Trumbo, retired. Trumbo was the executive director of the chamber for 34 years. In response to a reporter's question, McNeil said that Trumbo made the decision to retire in August 2023 and that the fraud case had nothing to do with her retirement. And moving to some news from Broomfield, the North Metro Fire Department in Broomfield is going to hold a bleeding control class and CPR classes on March 2nd. When someone has a traumatic injury, being able to control the bleeding greatly increases the chance of survival, fire officials said. Participants will learn how to pack a wound and how to apply a tourniquet during the bleeding control class from 10.30 to 11.30 a.m. on March 2nd at North Metro Fire Department Headquarters, which is located at 101 Spader Way in Broomfield. Similarly, if somebody 
goes into cardiac arrest outside the hospital, chances of survival are near 10%, officials said. If someone performs CPR at the person, chances of survival increase significantly. Fire officials will hold CPR training from 8 until 10 a.m. and from noon until 2 p.m. March 2nd. You can register online, and CPR certification will be offered through a partnership with the American Heart Association. Pucker up Lovin' Arms Animal Sanctuary to hold kissing booth with beloved cow Maybell. Maybell the cow geared up for Valentine's Day by doling out smooches. Lovin' Arms Animal Sanctuary in Erie held smooches with mooches. Maybell's kissing booth event last Sunday as a fun way for families to celebrate the February holiday. Lynette Cook, Humane Educator and Outreach Coordinator for Love and Arms, said that as much as the sanctuary's goal is to connect with the community, connect the community with these animals, they also like to educate people about the food and dairy industry and its ill effects on climate. Cook said that all the animals who live at their sanctuary are called residents. That's a nod to the sanctuary's belief that the residents have a right to life and happiness. The residents are part of our family, and this is where they live, Cook said. Cook described Maybell as a social creature and very loving, so celebrating her for the Sanctuary's Valentine event was a clear choice. Cook started as a volunteer at Lovin' Arms and said that her volunteering was a way for her to fulfill her belief system that all animals should be treated with compassion. Volunteering feels like I'm giving back to them after everything that all of their species have given to humanity. Cook said. Casey Martinez is also a volunteer at Love and Arms and said that volunteering is her way of giving back to the animals as well as fulfilling her belief system. These residents are no different than a dog or cat, Martinez said. She said that farm animals have all the same feelings typical that domestic animals do, and she described Maybell as sweet and social and just the silliest cow. She has been training Maybell for two months with a clicker where she can teach the cow to follow simple commands with the device. Maybell is easy to trust and is trusting of others, Martina said. She enjoys getting to help the community know and love the sanctuary's residents. The sanctuary exclusively gets its funds from grants and donations. Cook said it costs $300 a month alone for Maybell's hay. The sanctuary likes to give her other food options for nourishment, and Maybell is just one of the many residents at Love and Arms, so costs add up quickly. Love and Arms has both donations and sponsorships. With donations, the public can donate to the sanctuary's general fund, which goes toward general veterinary services, residents' bedding, and food. Cook said that Love and Arms has 11 different species, and each has an ambassador. Cook said people can get perks for sponsorships, either updates or information on the ambassador and a certificate about the resident species. People will get information about the species through the year, how they're doing, their different needs, and how the sponsorship money is going to be used, Cook said. More information about the sanctuary is available at www.loveandarms.org. That's L-U-V-I-N-A-R-M-S dot org. And now we turn to the editorial page with an article from Kate Beasley and Tom Isaacson entitled, Build the Limit Liability, Protect Recreation, Deserves Strong Support. 
Senate Bill 58, which is currently before the Colorado legislature, corrects a serious problem in Colorado law on access to outdoor recreation. It deserves the strong support of our community and representatives in the state legislature. Senate Bill 24-058, that's Senate Bill 58, the Landowner Liability Recreational Use Warning Signs Bill, addresses the question of the circumstances under which landowners who allow people to recreate on their property for free may be sued for injuries occurring to those people. It should be very difficult to sue for such injuries, unlike a landowner who charges an access fee and their thereby undertake some responsibility for keeping their property safe, a landowner who just lets you use their property for free is not undertaking any such responsibility. And outdoor rec recreationalists overwhelmingly understand that they assume the risks of using somebody else's property. It is fundamental to, res to responsible outdoor recreation that we study the landscape, evaluate the risks, know our limitations, make good decisions about where and how to recreate outside, and accept the consequences if something goes wrong. The existing Colorado recreational use statute was understood to provide broad protection to landowners who allow people to use their property free of charge. But that stable situation recently was upended when the, the federal appeals court in Denver affirmed a multi-million dollar judgment against the Air Force Academy for a cyclist who was injured on a path that was owned by the Academy. Its interpretation of the Colorado statute suddenly caused landowners considerable worry about over whether they were adequately protected from personal injury lawsuits. As a result, access to five 14ers were closed and access to many other important properties was cast into doubt and events like the Leadville 100 races had to scramble to figure out whether they would be able to continue using their courses, which crossed numerous properties. Some insurance companies quickly took notice and dramatically raised rates for liability coverage. In response, a broad coalition of outdoor recreation groups and private and public landowners was formed to work on a legislative fix. For more information on this coalition, visit www.fix crus.org. Last year, a bill was opposed by the powerful Colorado Trial Lawyers Association, which is composed of personal injury lawyers, and that piece of legislation died in the Senate Judiciary Committee. This year, the bill was revised to address CTLA's objections and now focuses on providing protection to landowners who place signs at key entrance points warning about any known dangers on their property. State Senator Dylan Roberts, who was a key vote against last year's bill, is now sponsoring Senate Bill 58. It deserves the full support of our community and our elected representatives. The city councils in this area and our county commissioners should express their support as this bill is strong in the interests of a community defined by recreation. As outdoor enthusiasts, we all have an interest in minimizing the risk that lands will be closed due to litigation worries. For numerous reasons, including all the mining claims that crisscross the land, hikers, runners, climbers, cyclists, equestrians, anglers, and others are often unaware of how many different owners' lands they are traversing. 
but all it takes is for one of those owners to close access due to litigation fears. Agreeing to limit our ability to sue those owners is a small price to pay to keep those lands open. It is entirely reasonable to expect us to read a sign warning of hazards and then accept personal responsibility if we choose to proceed anyhow. Also, this is an issue of basic fairness to landowners. Senate Bill 24-058 only concerns those landowners who charge no fee for access. They are allowing access out of their own generosity. Imagine if you were the landowner and in your kindness you let people rec recreate on your lands for free, but then you got sued for millions of dollars because an injured person felt that you were somehow obligated to constantly monitor your land to ensure that any hazards were remediated. You would expect the protections provided by Senate Bill 58, so we should all support the bill. Kate Beasley is the executive director of the Boulder Climbing Community, and Tom Isaacson is the BCC's advocacy chair and served for 10 years on Boulder's Open Space Board of Trustees. And in more guest editorials, Fight for Freedom to Learn by Sabante Merrick. A little over a year ago, the College Board unveiled its long-awaited draft AP African American Studies curriculum. What happened next was sad and all too predictable. Florida officials, led by Governor Ron DeSantis, howled. They claimed the course lacks educational value and violated state laws against teaching about race and racism. The College Board initially caved to Florida's demands and said the course would be heavily redacted and then reversed its course and said it wouldn't. By the end of 2023, the board released the final version of the course and it's better, but it's still missing some important concepts. The new course omits any discussion of structural racism and makes studying the Black Lives Matter movement, modern black history by any measure, optional. And that pretty much sums up the state of the fight against censorship and book banning in this Black History Month. Better, but still problematic. On the plus side, the last few months have brought some very good news. School board candidates endorsed by the pro-censorship group Moms for Liberty went down to resounding defeats last fall. After Illinois became the first state to prohibit book bans, several states, including Colorado, Kansas, Massachusetts, New Jersey, New Mexico, Washington, and Virginia all introduced their own anti-ban bills. But the censorship movement isn't going away. Librarians nationwide are being targeted by threats and harassment. And the propaganda outfit PragerU continues to pump out the offensive, woefully inaccurate junk that it calls edutainment for public schools that will buy it. So there's still work to do. Fortunately, the public is, is overwhelmingly on the right side of this issue. Poll after poll shows that Americans do not support censorship and book bans in school. Those of us who want children to have the freedom to learn are in the majority. We understand that kids are better prepared for life, and our country is better prepared to compete globally when education is historically accurate and reflective of the diversity of our culture. We understand that book banning is un-American and censorship is a tool of dictators. This majority needs to mobilize and be heard at the ballot box. The defeat of pro-censorship school board candidates in 2023 was a great start. Now we have to take that momentum into the local, state, and national elections this fall. In the meantime, we also know that public pressure works. 
a public outcry got the college board to change its plans for the African-American Studies course. And when publisher Scholastic said it would segregate books about the black and LGBTQ communities at its school book fairs, the public was outraged and Scholastic reversed its course. Together we have the power to stop the censors who want to whitewash our history and deprive kids of facts and stories that help them to understand our world. That applies to the black experience in America, but also the experience of the of LGBTQ people, indigenous peoples, people of diverse faiths, immigrants, and people with disabilities, and more. Civil rights activists have pushed for decades for book publishers and educators to acknowledge and teach our full history and to awaken our consciousness as a nation. We refuse to go backwards. Black History Month is a great time for us to commit to using the power that we have to protect the freedom to learn. Our kids, our country will be better for it. Savante Merrick serves as president and CEO of People for the American Way. And here's some news from Weld County. The Denver Zoo will expand its operations into the Lembeke Family Preserve, which is a donated 570-acre tract east of Greeley in Weld County. That was all according to the Denver Zoo's press release announced last week. Conversations between the family and the zoo began about 18 months ago, said Bob Lemke, who is president of United Water and Sanitation District and a Weld County ranch owner. I've always been a big fan of the zoo and came to the conclusion that this made sense, Lemke told Biz West. I signed the documents for the donation last December. The gift was made, he said, because the Denver Zoo has been part of our family tradition since the late 1950s. Both Carol and I loved visiting the old zoo of our childhood, and we took our kids there many times. It's always a special family outing, with the stewardship provided to endangered species by the zoo through the preserve. We hope the zoo can be part of our family for generations. The preserve will not be open to the public, and both the zoo and Lemke were reluctant to disclose the exact location of the square mile of land in order to protect endangered species that will be kept there. It's a remote holding miles from the Narek Public Road, Lemke said. You'd have to drive a lot, uh, drive through a lot of public land to get there. And according to a news release issued by the zoo, it will be developed in two phases. Phase one will be the facility expanding the zoo's breeding efforts to help threatened species survive and provide more space for its growing animal families because it's running out of space in the 84 acres in Denver City Park. Besides being able to add new species to its program, the zoo will also gain greater animal shifting and holding capacity. It will have space to temporarily relocate some animals while it does maintenance or renovations in City Park. In the second phase, the zoo plans to transform the facility into a conservation center focused on conservation, breeding, and wild in reintroduction of species that are threatened or endangered in Colorado and beyond. Lemke said that he understands the land will be largely, will largely include African ruminants, not members of the feline family. The wild animal sanctuary near Hudson houses some of those big cats.
That's their enterprise, Lemke said, but we will work with them closely on planning, as well as on maintaining some of their water infrastructure and things like fencing. We already donate hay to them on a regular basis, and we will certainly continue to do so. And in more education news, SVVSD CPR training. Students take the teaching lead. Seniors at St. Brains Valley's emergency medical technician class are not just learning about how to deliver life-saving first aid. They're also teaching it to district staff members. Last week, students led a two-hour session for 15 staff members at St. Brain Valley's Career Elevation and Technology Center. The students talked about using tourniquets, how to treat someone having a seizure, and different techniques to use with a choking victim. The session ended with a lesson on CPR and AED devices. Longmont High Senior Zamira Martinez demonstrated how to help someone choking who is taller by having them stand against a wall before using short, sharp jabs to clear the airway. Find the bottom of her ribs and punch until she coughs it up, Martina said. Martina said she has loved teaching others about first aid. Teaching keeps everything new in my head, she said. The students are overseen by EMS and health science instructor Karen Carr, and the students have trained about 300 St. Vrain Valley staff members in the past year. The certification and refresher training sessions include custodians, health clerks, teachers, campus supervisors, and school resource officers. The certification is through the American Heart Association. Carr, who is a paramedic and handles official CPR certifications, said that it's a cost-effective way to train staff members while giving students an opportunity to demonstrate their first aid skills and for students to get more experience talking to adults and to build camaraderie. This is a great practice for our students and such a great opportunity for these guys to show off what they know. Johanna Rizzo, who is the work-based learning coordinator at the Career Elevation and Technology Center, said she appreciated that the students provided a hands-on learning experience. The kids were great, Rizzo said. Having them to coach us through was really helpful. Welding teacher Henry Topham said that the last time he learned CPR techniques was in a health class about 20 years ago. This was very helpful, he said. A lot of my assumed knowledge wasn't accurate or relevant. A lot has changed. It was nice to see the students teach and to really try to provide accurate information. Students in the class said that it's a good entry into healthcare. Some of the students are headed to college to become doctors or nurses, while others are going into fields like firefighting and physical therapy. The class culminates with earning an EMT certification. It's one of the most hands-on classes, said Niwat High Senior Mason Peterson, who wants to work for a fire department. You can really experience what it's like. Melinda Meehan, who attends Erie High School and plans to attend the University of Colorado Boulder in the fall as a pre-med student, said the class is a good way to make sure that health care is the right career choice while still in high school. Plus, she said, being an EMT is a very good job to have to get experience and help pay for college. At the session, Carr went over current techniques for CPR and using an AED and then had students help staff members practice using CPR training mannequins. 
I promise in an emergency, everybody's going to be a little dazed. Erie High School senior Ashlyn Corson told her group as they practiced telling others not to touch the patient when delivering a shock with a defibrillator. You cannot be annoying enough about it. Corson said that family members that who are in healthcare plus her own interest in anatomy inspired her to take the district's healthcare classes. She's planning on getting a nursing degree to work as a flight nurse. I really fell in love with this class, she said. I can get into it with a ton of knowledge just right out of high school. And in other Boulder County news, the RTD station to reopen a year after meth contamination. So the downtown Boulder Station lobby will reopen on February 19th after a year of renovations to replace the building's interior ductwork, which was contaminated with methamphetamines last year. The inside of the station at 1814th Street in Boulder was closed last January, a year ago after an investigation into strong odors emitting from a restroom revealed levels of meth exceeding the Center for Disease Control limits, all according to a regional transportation district news release. Residue was also detected in the ductwork and was impossible to clean out, necessitating a full replacement of the ventilation system. The collective goal of all employees involved in the project was to ensure that the station could be reopened in a safe condition said RTD General Manager and CEO Deborah Johnson in a Monday news release. While illicit drug use is a societal issue that is not unique to RTD, it is our responsibility to provide employees and the public with a space that is clean and welcoming to inhabit. The agency spent $295,000 on external contractors in order to remediate the methamphetamine contamination including testing for contamination, repairing areas that were affected by replacing all ductwork and repainting the station interior, said project manager Pauline Heberman. The new ducts installed in the station have exterior insulation, which allows for the insides to be cleaned. Additionally, restroom ventilation was improved with more powerful exhaust fans that will keep smoke within those spaces. RTD also gave the lobby of the station a refresh, a refresh, repainting walls, adding a new coating to the benches and deep cleaning and sealing the main tile floor. You've been listening to the Boulder County News. My name is Leslie Madsen. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aftersight.org or by calling 303 786-7777.